promised myself that I wasn't going to say anything about the choir, but good gracious. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Dr. Estep, for the opportunity uh, to, to preach um, this morning. It's a fantastic um, privilege to be a part of, of this staff, of this church, and I thank God for it uh, every day. I'll never forget my first day of high school. I thought that, um, that I had arrived because there was no more middle school. Middle school is the most awkward time of anybody's life. I don't care what you say. And so here I was in high school four years, or according to my mother, possibly five or six years of educational bliss. I came into high school uh, very, very confident. And so here's the first day. Fast forward a few hours into French 2. <laughs> I'm not even done yet. Monsieur Garrett um, is, is there. And here I am, again, confident because I'm in French 2 as a freshman in high school. Now, this was before um, kindergartners started taking French or any other foreign language. It was back in 1994, 95, whatever year it was. And and I, I go and I sit down in my desk, and Monsieur Garrett looks at the class and he says this, I need a volunteer. And so confident, cocky, maybe arrogant, Philip raises his hand. That's me, I'm your volunteer. Philippe, come to the board. It was a chalkboard then. And I go up to the chalkboard and he says, I want you to write your welcome on the chalkboard. I reach down into the tray very confidently again, pick up a piece of chalk, and I write on the chalkboard, Y-O-U-R-W-E-L-C-O-M-E. I drop the piece of chalk like I would drop a mic and walk off the stage, right? I drop the piece of chalk in the tray. I walk by, I'm high-fiving my, my, my classmates as I sit down, and I sit down and I cross my, my, my arms, and Mr. Garrett looks at me, he looks at the chalkboard, he looks at the class, he looks back at me, he looks back at the chalkboard, and he says this, I'll never forget, Philippe, yes sir, rather smugly he said, thank you for proving that you are as dumb as you look. Welcome to high school, right? <laughs> I, think, I think the point that he was trying to make was, was this, and I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt, and I would love it if he's watching on TV, <laughs> is that you haven't even mastered the English language yet, and here you are as an arrogant ninth grader thinking you're going to master French. Well, I went on, and I finished French 4. After five years of French, you can figure out how that went. I finished and, and, and did all right. But, but he, he was trying to make a point, and... I say that to say this, as a high school graduate, I sat in a seat similar to this, having experienced many other embarrassing moments in high school, one of which include, one included running and tripping up the steps as I'm going to class, dropping my books everywhere, uh, and, I, and, I, and I made it. It's behind me, and for these graduates sitting before us today, they, they have survived, I'm sure, some moments like that, and they're glad they're behind them. But the question that I want us to think about this morning is this, what lies ahead? I think there's a natural question being pondered. What am I supposed to do now? I asked a couple of our college graduates, what's next? What's next? I want to know what, what, what are in your plans over the next few years? For some of these high school graduates, it's college or a job. 
for some of our college graduates. It's a job or another degree or, or even maybe um, their parents' basement. And I want to spend a few moments this morning answering the question, what am I supposed to do now? I want to answer it in a, in a spiritual way. And I want to answer it in a way that applies not only to the graduates that sit here in the front, but to the church as a whole. What am I supposed to do next? For the church as a whole, what am I supposed to do tomorrow? What's expected of me when I go wherever it is that I will go on Monday morning? We find a great answer in the book of Micah. If you will, turn in your Bibles to Micah chapter 6. We'll start reading in verse 8. It says this, He's told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. A little background as to what's going on here in Micah. Micah is prophesying in a time of political and social unrest. You couple that with the fact that this was also a time of great economic prosperity. The nation of Israel was being called out on their sins against God. And the consequences, certainly the consequences of their actions was judgment. But God would provide a a remnant, wouldn't he? And give them a Davidic king to rule over them. We see here in chapters 6 and 7 specifically, there is the rebuke, but then there is comfort. You're looking specifically at chapter 6. The flow is very interesting. It sets up like a courtroom scene. We see in verses 1 and 2, Micah calls all of creation as a witness. Listen to the words. Hear now what the Lord is saying. Arise and plead your case before the mountains. And let the hills hear your voice. Listen, you mountains, to the indictment of the Lord. And you enduring foundations of the earth, because the Lord has a case against His people, even with Israel, His chosen people, even with Israel, He will dispute. So there's the first two verses. And then we see in verses 3 through 5, the Lord interrogates His people. He provides them with an opportunity to respond. And then, in a way that only He can, reminds them of His faithfulness. We read, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? And then emphatically, answer me. Then he reminds them, let me just kind of rewind a little bit for you. Let's go back to when you were in bondage and slavery. I delivered you out of that. What case do you have against me? Where's the disconnect here? And then verses 6 through 8, God lets his people know what genuine obedience is looks like. Matthew Henry writes, after the precious promises in the two foregoing chapters relating to the Messiah's kingdom, the prophet is here directed to set the sins of Israel in order before them for two reasons. For their conviction and for their humiliation. Those two go hand in hand and here's why. As necessary to make way for the comfort, I love this, of gospel grace. If you're taking notes, you probably want to write that down. 
Just that phrase, gospel grace. Chapter 6 and 7 deals specifically with the nation at large, not just the individual leaders. And I think it would be important for us to pause here and say that any change that we want to see happen in our nation should begin with us as a whole. Too long we, we, we have sat back or we sit back and we wait for our leaders to change it for us. We think elected officials have to get it right. And so since we think that's the way it has to go, we try to elect Christian officials or politicians to fix the mess for us. And I would argue, and I think that, or I hope that you would agree, that it starts here. We see the blueprint here in Micah 6.8. This message is, is not a political message, of course. But it's a message from a prophet to a nation that I think sounds a lot like our own. So we pay attention and we see the blueprint outlined for us in Micah 6.8. What am I supposed to do next? As a Christian about to go to college, as a Christian graduate looking for a job or pursuing another degree, as a man or woman in the workplace, as a mom or a dad, as a retiree, what do I do? The good news is we see that the answer is not hidden from us. Look at verse 8. We see the truth of God or the blueprint. It's not a secret. He has told you, O man, what is good. That's the New American Standard Version. The NIV says it this way. He has told you, O man, what is good. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. The message says he has already made it plain how to live and what to do. I like that version. He's already made it plain. He's already given you the instructions. He's already told you what to do. Now you just go and do it. It's amazing to me how hard-headed human beings can be. Sometimes it's because information goes in one ear and directly out the other. Sometimes it's because people want to prove that they are right even though they know and everybody else around them knows that they're 100% wrong. So we see hard-headedness there and, and maybe kind of piggybacking on the back of that we see, and this is maybe the most frustrating, when people are just ignorant and they find absolute 100% complete bliss in their ignorance. And I think as you look through the Old Testament and you look at the nation of Israel, you have to label them somewhere along those lines. You can almost hear the frustration in the voice of Micah as he is prophesying to the nation. And I think it's a great opportunity for us to pause and think about how faithful and how patient God is with us as a nation, as a church, as individuals. You go back and you look in the book of Deuteronomy. This isn't new stuff for God's people to grasp. This isn't the first time that we've heard this. This isn't the first time the nation of Israel has heard this. Deuteronomy 10 12 through 13 says, Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways and love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and His statutes which I'm commanding you today for your good. So we see that it's not secretive. Do what you've been told to do. It's the beginning of the instruction. 
But then we also see it's not very complicated either. It's rather straightforward. And there are three points this morning from our text. The first is found in the in this next verse. Do justice. What am I supposed to do next? When I get to a college campus, when I get in, um, in, in the workforce, as I'm pursuing a degree, as I go to work, what am I supposed to do? Well, we are called to do justice. I love that the New American Standard Version translated this way. Do justice. Practice justice. Make it a part of your life. Don't just think about justice. Don't just think about doing things right. Don't just ponder it or, or, or kind of write an article about it, but rather just do it. The phrase to do justice or some, trans, justice or some translations say act justly would have been understood by Micah's audience as living with a sense of right or wrong. Seems very simple, doesn't it? Understanding the difference between right and wrong and doing what is right. In particular, the judicial courts had a responsibility to provide equity and to protect the innocent. Injustice, you see, at this time was a big problem for Israel. To do justly, to act with equity, fairness, and deference to those who are in a weaker social position is exactly the opposite of what's going on in what we see in Micah 6, 10 through 12. Violence, oppression, fraud, lying, and injustice. And in this regard, justice is a comprehensive term for a way of life that finds its expression in the covenant of God. Recently, I got wrapped up in a documentary. Maybe some of you saw it. It was on Netflix, and it was about a, a gentleman who was wrongfully imprisoned, and then I think it was for 18 years or something like that, and then seemingly wrongfully accused of murder after he got out of prison. And I sat there, and, 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 and I think it was a 10-episode uh, documentary. And I watched all 10 episodes in like, Three days, four days, I don't know what it was. They binge-watched this documentary, you know. What winners do, they binge-watch things, right? <laughs> but the topic of justice drove conversations between me and, and my friends and my family as we all discussed this documentary. I became very passionate about justice. I almost went and pursued a law degree and then realized how smart you have to be to do that and said, I'll stick with preaching, right? <laughs> I felt like there was something that had to be done to make it right. Someone had to stand up for this gentleman. Someone, justice had to be served in this way because it seems like it hasn't taken place. As I thought about that, I thought, you know what? I think we've all had a moment like that. We've been there. Will there be a moment, a person circumstances where, where we wanted to act, we wanted justice to take place, we, we wanted to step in, maybe we wanted to intervene. We knew what we needed to do, but then the question came this week, did I do it? Did I allow justice or did I, or did I, did I allow injustice? And I think that's what, that's what Micah's trying to get the nation to see. You, you, you've got it wrong. 
Voice says this. He says, to act justly is most important for it does not mean merely to talk about justice or to get other people to act justly. It means to do the just thing yourself. See, doing justice requires action. The picture that you should get of someone who's doing justice is an action shot. It's one of those pictures you have to change the setting on your camera because if you don't, it's going to be blurry. It's not a picture of someone being lazy. It's a very active picture. We listen to the words of another prophet, the prophet of um, Isaiah, Isaiah 1.17. Learn to do good. Learn to do good. Isn't it interesting to think about that? I think a lot of us think that we figure out how to do good on our own. It's a learned trait. There's nothing that I can do on my own good. Isaiah reminds his audience, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. The passage sounds very familiar because we see in James 1.27, we just went through a series walking through the book of James with our students this past semester and we learned this, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. This picture of justice, to do justice, to participate in justice, to act justly, gives us this picture of a, a certain selflessness, an attitude of service to and for Others. We've seen the book of James. James outlines marks of true and acceptable religion, noting that it's characterized by a lifestyle of obedience to God, being doers of the word and not just hearers. I found this quote from Chuck Swindoll to be very, very intriguing. Much of Micah's indictment against Israel and Judah involves these nations' injustice toward the lowly. Unjust business dealings, robbery, mistreatment of women and children, and a government that lived in luxury off the hard work of its nation's people. And he asked this question, where does the injustice dwell in your life? Who are the lowly in your life? Do you need a call toward repentance like the people of Israel and Judah did? Micah's impassioned plea for God's chosen people to repent will cut many of us to the quick. Most of us don't decide daily to cut people down or find ways to carry out injustice. Instead, listen, we do it out of habit. Let's allow the words of Micah to break us out of our apathy about extending justice and kindness to others and press on toward a world that better resembles the harmonious kingdom to come. Let's determine to live as God desires, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. And so number one, we do justice because it's commanded of us. It's not merely a suggestion. So what do we do tomorrow? A good place to start would be to think justly, to act justly, to do justice. Number two, we see that we're called to love kindness. There are two words that I want to focus here briefly, and those two words are the ones that I just mentioned. The first is love. The word here that is used is, is, is defined as a love above all others. It's used in Scripture to describe the way that a man is called to love his 
uh, his wife. We see that in Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 4. We see it in the, in the story and the friendship of David and Jonathan, the way they loved each other, so a strong bond in friendship. And we see it in 1 Kings 10, 19, the way that God loves his people. To love kindness, that word love, this is a huge word. It's not just suggesting that you try to show kindness to people every now and then. Quite the opposite. Imagine it this way from the mouth of God. Don't show kindness, but love to show kindness. Give others the same measure of mercy that you want to receive from me. So we love to show kindness. Then the second word there, kindness. Have you ever been around someone who just isn't kind? Anytime I think, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about the type of person who you've never really seen do a kind thing to anyone. Or really doesn't even plan on ever doing it, right? When I think about someone who's not kind, I think about just a grumpy old man, right? It's like, it's like that old man who yells at the neighborhood kids, get off my grass, right? That's what I think about when someone who's, who's unkind, who just, is just in a bad mood all the time who never says a kind word, who's always got something to complain about. And I will confess, at the age of 34, that my wife is terribly afraid of what I'm going to be like when I become an old man. Whatever age that is, right? I don't know. I'm not going to say it. I don't want to get in trouble. Because evidently I've got unkind tendencies, or I get a little grumpy at times, or I yell at the kids to get off the grass, whatever it is. So maybe I need a definition of what kindness is. I need to figure it out. Let me give you a simple definition. The simple definition of kindness is love in action. Love in action. Where do we see this? We look in Ephesians 5, 1. Listen to what Paul says. Be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us as an offering, a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Love in action, we see that. Certainly we see it in John 3.16. It's kindness. Kindness is just putting the love that you have because God has loved you into action. And I think it can be very, very simple. Henry says this puts great honor upon practical religion, that is the imitating of God. We must be holy as God is holy, merciful as he is merciful, perfect as he is perfect. But there's no one attribute of God more recommended to our imitation than that of his goodness, his kindness. Be you imitators of God or resemble him in every grace and especially in his love and in his pardoning goodness. God's kindness is characterized by persistent and unconditional tenderness and mercy. His kindness is on display in his pursuit of man. He seeks after man with love and mercy. And wouldn't it be wonderful, church, if our lives were marked by this divine quality of kindness, or as Henry puts it, of pardoning grace. As I looked at Ephesians 5 and, and did some reading on that, I came across maybe the summation of, of this, and it's this, that, that loved children long to imitate their loving father. I've never 
heard a man or, or a woman say, I want to be like my father, I want to be like my mother, and they had a father or a mother who was a workaholic or who was abusive, who had never spent time at home, who never had a kind word to say. Rather, the opposite is true. When I hear people say, I want to be like my dad, I want to be like my mom, it's a father or a mother who was kind, who was compassionate, who stood by their side. And as I read that this week, I thought, you know what, this is a great thing for me as a parent to understand. If I want my children to do what is right, if I want my children to seek after God, if I want my children to grow in the things of the Lord, my job is to love them and then pray that they imitate me as I'm imitating the Father. What a way to worship God. To imitate Him. To love to show kindness to others in light of the kindness that He shows to you. We look to God and we imitate Him. Thirdly, we walk humbly. We do justice, we love kindness, and we walk humbly. Not alone. Look at the text. With your God. The, work, the word walk here means literally to walk. <laughs> There's an action denoted here. It also has a figurative meaning as well. It's how we're to conduct ourselves on a daily basis. Listen to this definition. To proceed as the habit of one's life indicates that the person initiates the action and participates in the results or effects thereof. I love that. There are two things there. First, it's habitual. It's daily. Anything that, that, that is daily or a habit takes time and it takes discipline. Second, it's participatory. We have the opportunity to walk with God humbly every day. But here's the thing. Humility isn't something that we are reeking of as a society today, is it? And I think the invention of the selfie um, has, has further... Um, led to the demise of mankind. I think social media might be the thing that takes us under. I read a quote last week that said it's, it's, not, it's, it's called the selfie because narcissisty was too hard to spell. <laughs> so if our culture does not show us how to walk humbly or how to be humble, then where do we find the model? We understand that who we are and we understand who God is. We understand that we are a sinner saved by grace. Understanding that we can't walk humbly without a right relationship with God. All this is in response to the questions posed in verses 6 and 7. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to Him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? You notice there in the text that these are all external works, and not only all external works, but external religious works, thinking that somehow we can earn God's favor by our quote-unquote hard work. They thought that the answer was to carry out some ritual, in a sense thinking that God would be bought off by objects rather than obedience. And here's the, here's the problem. So often we think that we can offer God everything that we think He needs, but the one thing that He desires, we fail to give Him. 
So we want to give them sacrifices. We want to give them burnt offerings. We want to, hey, you want, you want a ram? How about 10,000 rams? Hey, I'm going to flood this river with oil to cover my sins. Or maybe I'm going to give you my firstborn son, which we read, that was a, a slap in the face because it's a pagan ritual. And all God wants is our obedient hearts. Micah points out that Israel knew how to walk. The nation had been taught truth, but listen, they refused to walk in it. And so too we find ourselves in a similar situation at times, unwilling to walk humbly with God. Rather, we choose to walk arrogantly in front of Him. So what do we do tomorrow? We get up. We do justice, we love kindness, and we walk humbly. But we also remember, as I close, that Micah isn't saying these things save man. To do right, to love mercy, to walk in humility with God is impossible for the natural man. In order to do this, there must be new birth. And new birth takes place when the sinner believes and expresses faith in true repentance. So I ask you this morning, do you know... Do you know God? Do you genuinely know who He is? Have you ever paused and thought about that question? Maybe you're like, as as Isaiah outlines in uh, chapter 1, verses 11 through 20, and God is, I'm tired of all the stuff. I'm tired of all the rituals. I'm tired of all, I'm tired of the game that you're playing. All I want is you. Guilty of offering God everything but the one thing that he wants. Or maybe you've been playing the game really well. And today is the day that you surrender your all to him. I pray that today is the day that we as a church, that being the First Baptist Church of Columbia, that we as the church, that meaning every single brother and sister of Christ in Christ, truly understand the call on our lives to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God. Father God, we thank you so much for the ability to gather here this morning freely. Father, we thank you for your word. And now, God, as we enter into this time of invitation, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would move and that we would respond accordingly for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We invite you to stand. Let me extend an invitation to you. Maybe for the first time today you've realized, you know what, I'm not saved. I've been playing the game far too long. I'd love to talk to you about how to get into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Perhaps you'd like to take a time of of prayer and commitment, or maybe you're looking for a church home. As the choir sings, you respond and we'll greet you.